Father, thanks again that you speak the Bible to us by your Spirit. Uh, please do um, tune our heads and hearts to what is true. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. In him, amen. We constantly filter information to decide whether it matters. Now, what Mark says matters, it's worth taking your time. It deserves your attention. All day, every day, we filter information. We decide what matters. We walk past books we don't, and don't read them. Some of them we'll never read. Uh, others we're planning to get to one day. But we filter and decide when it gets our attention, if at all. But it's not just books on shelves. Our screens offer news stories, web pages, emails, social media posts. And that's just reading. Then the videos start, then all the audio stuff and podcasts and audiobooks and whatever else, music. We constantly filter information to decide whether it's worth investing our time and effort. For the first readers, uh, the events Mark writes about were 30 years in the past. I'm not sure many kilometers away. For us, Mark writes about uh, things that close to 2,000 years ago that happened 14,000 kilometers away. Why are these snippets of history, these snippets about ancient events, why are they worth our time? Why is it worth thinking about and seeing how they weave together? Well, Mark shows you in the first part of chapter 1. He tells you up front who he thinks Jesus is. He tells you who he is so you can see how important it is to know whether he's right. So that you can listen to the evidence to figure out whether he's right. He tells you up front who he thinks Jesus is so that you can hear exactly what it means for Jesus and so you can hear what it means for you. So let's get into it. Uh, verse 1. At the gospel, the good news, it's all about Jesus, and Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Christ not, isn't his surname. Uh, the Greek word Christ, the Hebrew word for Messiah, uh, they both mean anointed, and, and they're a shorthand way of talking about God's promised, chosen, and anointed king. We'll hear Jesus um, recognized as Christ by Peter all the way in chapter 8. We'll hear Jesus spell out what it means for him to be Christ. But right up front, here in the very first sentence, Mark tells us that Jesus is Christ. He kind of comes to the conclusion before he's actually shown us any of the evidence. He tells us the conclusion so that immediately we can be looking at the evidence to see if it's true. We can be trying to figure out what does it actually mean for Jesus to be Christ. In the first sentence, Mark also calls Jesus the Son of God. Uh, when we get to verse 11, I'll show you why I think that phrase, Son of God, is used as another way to talk about Jesus as the Christ. So here, the first sentence, the first verse, Mark tells us Jesus is the Christ. From the very beginning, we can be trying to figure out if it's true and what it means, what it means for Jesus and what it means for us. Now, Mark starts on that process by pointing to the Lord's promise. He quotes what the Lord Yahweh, the living, true, and holy God, promised. Uh, should be a slide with what Mark says uh, and, what's, and where it comes from in the Old Testament prophets, Malachi and Isaiah. Now, Mark only names Isaiah deliberately uh, 
perhaps because he thought Isaiah was thought of Isaiah as the more ancient and the greater prophet, or perhaps because he wants us to read Malachi's words as an explanation and expansion of Isaiah's words spoken centuries earlier. The quote is a, an interpretive remix. He combines the two related prophetic speeches. He modifies the wording a little bit to help us see Jesus more clearly. So, how are they related? Well, both mention a messenger. A messenger who prepares the way. A voice who prepares, who says prepare the way. In both Old Testament passages, the messenger gets things ready for the Lord God himself to come. I'll start by looking at the Isaiah passage. Isaiah chapter 40 is the turning point, a turning point in the book of Isaiah. Uh, just before it, the Lord uh, warns his people uh, that they will go into exile under Babylon, uh, Babylonian attack. But chapters 40 to 66, they look beyond the exile. They look to a time when, just like the angel of the Lord came and uh, brought Israel out of Egypt and went before them, uh, conquering their enemies, so the Lord himself will come and he will go ahead of the nation to rescue them. The Lord himself says he will comfort his people at the start of chapter 40. Uh, Beyond days of discipline, a voice will cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A messenger to proclaim, and then the Lord God himself coming to comfort and care for his people, to bring them home. How's that? Isaiah chapter 47 describes Babylon's fall, uh, and they they fall because of the Lord's care for his people Israel, which includes defeating and destroying their enemies. Isaiah 48 says he will refine Israel. His glory is seen in his compassion and mercy towards his people. Isaiah chapter 51, his salvation will be forever. The ransom of the Lord will return and come with singing to Zion. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. That's 600 years before Jesus. God promised he would come to save. The thing is, when Israel returned from Babylon, there wasn't all that much joy. It was a bit of a letdown compared to what had been promised. Centuries after Isaiah spoke and centuries before Jesus came, back in the promised land, God spoke through his prophet Malachi. He spoke answering Israel's complaints about how, about how he had let them down. Now, I'll just look at one of them. Chapter 2, uh, the end of Malachi chapter 2, he says, Give me a slide. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. I'll be asking, where is the God of justice? The next words are their reality check. The Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will, will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? They look for the God of justice. And the God of justice will come. His messenger will prepare his way. And then he, the God of justice, comes. But when he comes, who can endure that day? Who can stand when the holy God of justice appears? Well, not those idolatrous um, Israelites. Unfaithful Israel. It's important then and it's important now. Uh, People who wonder why God doesn't punish the wicked need to be careful that they're not among the wicked when God comes to punish. People who wonder why God doesn't punish the wicked need to be careful that they're not among the wicked when God comes to punish. So before the Lord comes, he sends a messenger who warns and says, get ready. Isaiah chapter 40, God promised that the Lord would come to rescue his people. Malachi chapter 3, God warns not to be among the judged when God came. Mark brings them together and says, one messenger prepares for both, well, one coming to do both. One messenger preparing for one coming of the Lord Yahweh, which means judgment for some and rescue for others. So what's that got to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus? The Son of God. Well, verse 2, as it is written... Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is the messenger. The messenger came. He is the voice in the wilderness. He didn't pull his his punches. He preached a gospel of uh, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now there's kind of discussion over whether he was treating uh, Jews like Gentiles and asking them to go through the initiation ceremony. Or maybe he was asking them to reenact the Red Sea crossing. Or maybe even reenacting the faithful generation crossing the Jordan into the promised land. It's not super clear, but what is super clear is that he's telling Israel that they are far from faithful. That they are rebellious. That they need to repent. Some may have been very religious, but their religion was worthless. They are not ready to meet their maker. So John the Baptist told them to stop what they're doing, to ask God for forgiveness of their wickedness. He's warning if there's no change, they'll meet God coming in judgment. It's time to stop stop giving God a little piece of their lives, living Sunday to Saturday with no thought of obedience towards him. And they realized he was right. They came in their droves to confess their sins and to be baptized. John Price and the nation repented. They came for forgiveness and they came determined that they would begin to treat their God as their God. Now there had been a similar turn uh, turn around in Israel's history when God... um, sent down fire and the sacrifices of the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. Elijah was his prophet then, which is why God describes his his messenger as Elijah at the end of Malachi. Again, there's there's a slide for this. 
It's why Mark takes a moment in verse 6 to mention what John wore. The wilderness man with the garment of hair and the belt of leather resembles the ancient prophet Elijah under whom God brought the nation back to himself. And that's the more fundamental similarity. They both spoke confronting messages and God used both to bring virtually all of Israel to repentance. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. The Elijah was to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So he demands repentance, lest Israel meet their God as their judge, rather than as their savior. What did John say? Uh, how did he warn? Verse 7. After me comes one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to strip down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's only a messenger. He prepares for the truly great one. Uh, stripping down and untying someone's sandals was slave work. It was humiliating. It was so humiliating, so humiliating that no Jew could command another Jew to do it. Not a Jewish servant, not a Jewish slave. It's the lowest of the low. And John says he is too unworthy to reach up to do the lowest, too humiliating task. So great is the one who comes after him. His baptism with water is trivial compared to baptism with the Holy Spirit. The most important person in Israel for hundreds of years, God's prophet, is just a messenger. So th think back. Mark quoted Isaiah and Malachi to help us understand what's going on. The way John describes himself, the way he's describing who comes after him, well, it fits, doesn't it, with what Malachi said and with what Isaiah said? John the Baptist is the messenger who prepares for when the Lord God comes. When the Lord God comes to save and rescue and deliver, as Isaiah had spoken, to judge and condemn and refine, as Malachi had spoken. In verse 9, Jesus comes. He is baptized, uh, and Mark shows us why. Uh, he's writing about Jesus rather than any of those thousands of other people who came out to be baptized. Verse 5, they were baptized in the river, confessing their sins, because they provoked God's displeasure. But look at Jesus, verse 10 and 11. Jesus is baptized in this same river, and God in heaven confesses that Jesus is pleasing to him. The way the Spirit comes in verse 10 hints at that same pleasure. The heavens torn open in verse 10. It's Isaiah 64 language. It's a chapter where, um, it's a chapter where um, Isaiah looks to God to open the heavens, to come down and pleads with him not to destroy his rebellious people, not to be desperately angry with Israel. Well, Mark shows us the heavens torn open and the Spirit coming down on the one Israelites who has no sin, no sin to repent of. And so the Spirit of God who rejects all unrighteousness, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in peace and not judgment. 
is like a, a not like a not not like fire coming down in judgments, but like a dove coming in to land gently on its perch. He comes in peace. Hence, that God's pleasure in His Son. But then the voice uh, comes from heaven. The living, true, and holy God speaks from heaven to Jesus. He says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And those words, they echo two different uh, Old Testament passages. Uh, one psalm about the Christ uh, and one of, of the servant song from Isaiah. I think Mark mentioned that Jesus is Christ in verse 1. It helps us go to the psalm. Uh, Mark then quoting Isaiah chapter 40, which leads on into those uh, servant songs. It helps us go to the servant song. Uh, let's start with the psalm. Uh, psalm. Psalm 2, the Lord God sets his king on Zion, his holy hill. And then the king says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's what God promised King David about his descendant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Where God said that I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So part of God's promise of his Christ is anointed king. So when God says from heaven to Jesus, you are my beloved son, he is saying to Jesus, you are my beloved Christ. The anointed king. That's why Mark uses the phrase son of God back in the first sentence. It's another way of describing Jesus as the Christ. And now we've heard the first piece of evidence. That Jesus really is the Christ. We've heard God in heaven confirming that Jesus on earth is his Christ, his beloved son. Now the other half of that little, um, that little, little saying is God echoes from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 42. It's partly the quote from Isaiah 40 that sends us there. It's also the spirit given. Uh, listen, Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. See, Jesus is that servant. He is that servant. But you may remember if you were around when we did Isaiah together, that servant is the servant who there are more songs about as you read on on Isaiah. The servant song is one of a series which includes the lines, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now, Mark doesn't get us thinking about that just yet. But now we know that Jesus is the servant who Isaiah spoke about. And we're reading on to see what that might mean. We read to see what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God and the pleasing servants. And already we're seeing him stand with Israel in going to baptism, and apart from Israel, that he's so different from them. They came, they were baptized in the river, they confessed their sins because they had provoked God's displeasure. Jesus baptized in the same river, the Spirit descending upon him, and God in heaven confessing, his pleasure in his son. But briefly, the next thing Mark shows us is the Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness. 
uh, where he stays for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Jesus, Jesus doesn't get a pass on temptation. He's sinless, but he's sinless because he resisted temptation. He resists where we fail. He resisted under direct attack of the influence of Satan himself. We'll see how that defeat of Satan echoes out in what Jesus does as we read on. But here's the twist to what Mark's been showing us. Mark got us ready for it, for it in verse 2. You may have noticed when the verses were on the screen before, uh, I bolded it this time. Mark quoted Malachi. He said, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way. But when you look it up in Malachi, Malachi actually said, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord God, the speaker. The messenger in Isaiah, the messenger in Malachi, prepare the way for the Lord God's coming. And Mark quotes the Lord speaking to another person. The messenger preparing his way. It looked like Jesus was the one who came after John, the messenger, in verse 9. Maybe you're already thinking that. Verse 14 confirms it. John the Baptist was the messenger and he prepared the way for the Lord Yahweh Jesus coming. He is the one whose sandals John was not worthy to stoop down and untie. In Jesus, the Lord God is present to save and rescue and deliver and judge and condemn. Because Jesus is the Lord God present, Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. See, the time has come with his coming. The kingdom of God is near because its king is near, right in their midst. The king and ruler of the universe has come to establish his rule. In his kindness, there is still time to make peace with him before the final judgments. So the urgency is even greater. Even greater than when the messenger spoke saying, get ready for Jesus coming. It is time to repent and believe. You and I deserve to hear a voice from heaven say, you're my loved creature, but you have provoked my judgment. Which is why Jesus came to save. That we might be spared. His invitation to come to him to repent and believe his gospel, it's still open. It is time to turn back to God. It's time to find peace with him through his son. It's time to invite and warn friends and family and colleagues and whoever God puts us in contact with. We constantly filter information to decide whether it matters. And what Mark says matters. It's worth your time. It deserves your attention. He hasn't shown us much of the evidence yet. A little bit, but not much. But he has shown us why we shouldn't filter him out. He's equipped us to assess and understand the evidence that he's going to show us by telling us his conclusion up front. 
It's a conclusion that matters. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the suffering servant. Isaiah spoke about Jesus is Lord and God come to judge and save. So it's worth reading. It's worth listening. It's worth engaging in conversation with it, about it with one another so that we will see Jesus more clearly. See who he is, what he did, and why it matters. I want to make four very brief um, observations before I finish and have some time for questions or thought and then questions and comments. Uh, First, Mark isn't defining Trinity for us. But he is clearly saying that Jesus is the Lord Yahweh who comes after his messenger and showing us Jesus in relation with the Spirit who descends on him. And letting us hear that the Lord Yahweh, Father, speak to his Son from heaven. Second, Mark has stated his conclusion. He'll be showing us evidence of what you yourself would have seen and heard if you had been there at the time. So it's your job to assess whether what he said about Jesus here at the beginning, is actually true. Don't stop reading until you see clearly what Mark's claiming with these things. Until you see clearly, I'm convinced that it's true. Third, don't miss what's at stake. Don't miss what's at stake for you and everyone. Because if what Mark says is true, then there is nothing that is more important. Your life cannot be the same. You don't know anyone whose life is okay if they're out of tune with this reality. You need to hear and heed this message. There isn't a man, woman, or child in Brisbane or among the nations who doesn't need to hear this truth about Jesus. Fourth and finally, don't think nodding it's true means you're in tune with it. Look at your life. Are you treating Jesus as Lord and Christ in your Monday to Sunday? Are you in? Are you all in? Are you all in on him as your Savior? Are you all in in on him as your Lord? Because if Jesus really is who Mark says he is, There's no aspect of your life or my life that can remain untouched. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this glimpse of your Son. Your Son who is the Christ, the suffering servants, He is himself Lord and God. You son who came to bring salvation, who will come to judge. Father, please grip us with the realities of who he is and how who he is reveals more of who you are together with your spirit. Please help us to see how the truths that we'll read as we go on in Mark 
uh, bolster and confirm these realities about who Jesus is and help us to see him more clearly. And seeing him, help us to see what's at stake for us, for those around us, for the men, women, and children of the nations. And to order our lives around promoting the gospel to them. And Father, please don't let us just nod, it's true, but rather continue to tune our heads and hearts to the truth of who Jesus is, of what he has done, that would live all our days acknowledging him in our thoughts and words and actions and giving glory to you, our Father. Through the Lord Jesus. Amen.